And now, the season finale of season two of Geek Top 5. Yay! <laughs> I'm Jesse. I'm Graham. And it's been a heck of a couple of weeks. There's been a ton of stuff happening. We've distilled them into sort of the five top things that we think you want to know about. Number five, actually a lot of little things, because the past couple weeks we saw the Electronic Entertainment Expo, the, the place for people to show off the latest stuff that they want to sell to video gamers. And there is a ton of cool stuff coming out. Unfortunately, we don't have time for all of it, but we're going to give you some quick hits here with our, our number five. Yeah, so what are, we, what, what are we looking at? I guess, I mean, one of the biggest things from the show was the new Mario game, Super Mario Odyssey. Uh, it's coming out in October for the Nintendo Switch. Yeah, so Mario games have evolved a lot since the, you know, one guy walking across a 2D plane, jumping and hitting bricks and, and whatnot. And this is is continuing in that trend of Mario exploring these big open worlds. Yeah, this is sort of a, more of a Mario 64, Mario Sunshine, Mario Galaxy kind of game. This, these are what the new Mario flagship games are, and this is following right in that trend. The big thing about this is the new ability is to play as... Like, not just playing as Mario, but to play as all kinds of stuff through the ability to possess other creatures in Mario's world. They've got different words for it, but that's what's (laughs) happening. You are possessing Koopas and Bullet Bills. It's a little creepy. Yeah, and a big part of the trailer, possessing a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah, I mean, that is very cool, but another... I mean, I don't want to undersell the T-Rex. The T-Rex is a big deal. It's very cool that you get to play around as a T-Rex with a little Mario hat on his head. But you also get to take control of real or, like, more real-looking humans than you typically find in a Mario game. Yeah, we're seeing Mario in... uh, There's a lot of different environments, let's be fair, but at least one of them is a very realistic-looking urban setting. There's a lot of jokes that it looks like Mario in a GTA game. Yeah, so they... Apparently, in my research, that's New Donk City... And it's filled with Donkey Kong references. So that's fine. Yeah. All right, so what city was King Kong originally in? What is that? Isn't that New York? Is that New York? So yeah. then is this city is probably Nintendo New York, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, so that looks really cool. I mean, the, another little detail about that is that there's a co-op feature where the second player can play as the hat. Yeah, the hat is a character in this game. It's yeah. a weapon, and it's got its own things. There's, there's lots of cool stuff. We have some of it posted on the website. We've got a lot to go through. Let's keep moving on. Um, we got. We finally saw a lot of stuff for the new God of War game. Yeah. Which uh, So give us a little rundown on the God of War franchise. Yeah, originally PlayStation 2, and then the trilogy ended on PlayStation 3. And then they kept making a couple games that were obvious cash grabs, and the franchise died very quickly. It, uh, it's an action, it's like a third-person action brawler environment game that basically talks about like why aren't there Greek gods anymore? Mm. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, it's because they all killed each other. In this case, specifically, you, the player, playing the role of Kratos, killed all the Greek gods. Now Kratos is back, and he's... Fighting Norse mythology. Which sounds like just, uh, you know, just a new paint job on the same old story. But it looks like this is going to be a bit deeper than the previous God of War games. Yeah, there's this whole mechanic. I mean, besides what that means for that character, it is more story-driven than I'm giving it credit for. Uh, But, like, we see a big part of this is the character now interacting with his son. um, Which already means a lot for the character, because a big part of who he is is getting over the death of his wife and daughter. The the mechanic between the two is a father-son relationship. It's got a lot of shades of The Last of Us between Joel and Ellie. Right. With the same kind of a, like, you know, a developing of an understanding between these two different characters. And then carrying over into the combat. Like, we see Kratos... it's God of War. It's bloody, violent, <laughs> medieval combat. But we also see the kid like helping out. He's got a bow and arrow, and he's sort of dodging around. And they're doing co-op 
like, you know, he'll jump off of Kratos' back and shoot something. It, it, it's interesting. A big thing that bothered me with this is the change to Kratos' voice actor. Hmm. Maybe that's just me. The very distinctive voice, Terrence C. Howard playing Kratos, and I guess they didn't want to bring him back, and they brought Christopher Judge, uh, who's probably best known to geeks as Teal'c from Stargate SG-1, who's also a really distinctive voice. Yeah. So Kratos opens his mouth and Teal'c comes out. It's, I find that very jarring. Um, hmm. And Terrence Howard on his Twitter has not been, like, he's not thrilled with the development either. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I just, like, this is the second time this has happened. They did this with David Hayter and Solid Snake in the Metal Gear games, too. Hmm. Like, you just learned, to, imagine if they recast Captain Picard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, like, all the rest of the crew, but some other guy. Like, it just... Or especially if, it's like one thing if the, the actor just doesn't want to do it anymore or they couldn't reach an agreement but it's another thing to take an iconic voice actor and and replace him for no apparent reason. Yeah, especially since I mean, like, yeah, Teal's Christopher Judge voice is very distinctive, but he does sound a lot like Terrence Howard. Like it's it, right. it, it's enough to tell the difference, but it's not like they're going for a new kind of performance. Yeah. So hmm. eh, Weird. we'll see that uh, wins God War. That's set for a 2018, probably late 2018. Yeah, uh, Mario, by the way, is coming out on October 27th. Uh, what else is on the list? We saw Anthem, Bioware's new, new, quote-unquote, intellectual property. Right. Bioware, the guys behind Mass Effect, Dragon Age, Knights of the Old Republic. They're making a new thing. So it seems, based on the gameplay anyway, like a lot like Destiny. It is unashamedly Destiny. Okay. Up to the point, like, we see this gameplay trailer, and they do that horrible thing where they script multiplayer banter. Right. And they have I these... couldn't tell I couldn't tell that at first. I thought, oh, this is just the, the characters, characters talking. Yeah. But then they go like, oh, good kill, bro. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> lol. Oh good loot. It's like, oh jeez, guys, just <laughs> take it easy. Uh, but no, it's a game where people in mechanical power suits defend what's left of humanity behind this big wall, and they go outside the wall and blow up monsters and aliens and collect cool-looking guns with stupid names. So how much of that is, is from Destiny? That is the plot of Destiny. There's a wall and there's, everything? Yeah. There's, really? Because I thought Destiny was like you go travel across planets. You do, but the last city is the last city on Earth. And oh. there's a wall. The first thing you do in Destiny when you get revived is you go in, like, you got to get behind the wall to, huh. to where the tower is. It is... At somebody at Bioware said, okay, we're making Destiny. Really? Wow. Yeah. It's shameless. Up I, to the point, like, she finds, in the demo we saw, she finds this exotic gun called Jara's Wrath, which is such a Destiny thing, because the biggest thing in Destiny is all these ridiculous guns with, like, personalities, and like, they don't actually talk or anything, but it's, you know, the, a big popular gun in Destiny is the Gjallarhorn. Hmm. Lots of people love it. It's, it's named for a Norse mythology thing. And Thorn, the fancy pistol. and It's, it's all about the, these crazy guns. And they made sure to point out that that's something you can do in this game, too. Wow. Um, it looks very pretty. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it looks, looks beautiful. It looks very staged. Um, yeah. Maybe that's in the gameplay engine, but if that's somebody playing it with a controller, I'll eat my hat. <laughs> Don't, yeah, I, so I, I don't know, I'm coming across a, a really negative just because of all the obvious things in this, but it could be real, a blast. I'm excited because one of the main writers from the first two Mass Effect games is on board this, and that to me is a good sign. Yeah, and Bioware is a good sign. Definitely, Those definitely. guys, they got a huge pedigree. It's going to be, a, I mean, we know from Bioware it's going to be a big story-driven game with lots of choices and a cool world. Like it's, it's something to be super excited about. That's also slated for the end of 2018. 
then we've got uh, Skull and Bones, which oh, is Skull and Bones. It looks just like the 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 pirate elements of that piratey Assassin's Creed game, right? Yeah, without the stupid assassin stuff, right. just the pirates. This is the. I mean, this is just me. I am the most jazzed about Skull and Bones <laughs> as anything from E3. Assassin's Creed Black Flag. Assassin's Creed games got to the point where we had two a year, like a main one and a side one, and they got very tired very quickly. Black Flag was Assassin's Creed 4, not counting some spin-off titles, and they decided to spice it up by adding a pirate element, and the pirate stuff was great. You'd, you'd build your ship, and you, like, you'll, you'll spend gold to upgrade it, and then you'll raid other ships. Maybe you sink them, maybe you board them, and then there's a the cool sword fight. You do the thing where you grab the, like, the line, and you swing from your ship to their ship. With right. The, so, I mean, Such a blast. Seems... This is just the pirate stuff with no assassin stuff. <laughs> I, I will say that it, it it looked like the boarding element was just sort of a, a succeed-fail sort of thing, or the pirates jump over and then... You either succeed or you don't. You don't actually get to go and interact and be part of that boarding party. We certainly haven't seen it. Right. I can't imagine why they wouldn't incorporate it. Yeah. Uh, but the game is very far from being done. We also, like, it scared me for a bit. All we saw was multiplayer. It right. It looked like it was going to be multiplayer only, and the company had to reissue a press. It said, no, no, no. There's also going to be a campaign. There's also going to be some solo stuff. It, it just, uh, they, sh- they keep showing a cinematic trailer at the end of the things where there's a Kraken Right. Like a sea, a sea monster. It just Pirates. Everybody loves pirates. And I think since Sid Meier's Pirates Gold, in, this is ages ago. This is pre-console. The, the original Sid Meier's Pirates. Those games have always been a blast. This one looks... It, I just, it's exactly what I want. I don't want any more Assassin's Creed because they've yeah. run it into the ground. There is a new Assassin's Creed Ugh. game, by the way. We're not going to talk about it because it's just... It, it doesn't make the top five. But Skull and Bones looks like a blast. Uh, what else we got on here? Uh, Shadow of the Colossus, right? So that's oh, a game yeah. that originally came out on the PS2, and it's all—it was all about the visuals and the sort of sparse storytelling, and, and getting to see these beautiful giant creatures that you then killed. But uh, that was part of the story, right? Yeah, it was—it was a unique game in that like, if you think about. Like, for one thing, we've had giants in games before, but these were like your character was the size of this thing's foot, and like, if you think of games as a level and boss. All this game was, really, was some exploration and then 16 boss fights. But the bosses were the level, because you had to figure out you know, how to climb them, mm. essentially, and what to do to defeat these huge monsters. We, uh, we, we, we turned it into a party game, almost. We had six people in a room going, no, 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 now jump to his other arm, and then knock that thing over, and you can climb up it. It's a really unique gameplay mechanic that hasn't been duplicated and just really a beautiful world. I mean, it would be a hard thing to duplicate without it coming off as like an Anthem-esque total rip-off of a, another property. Oh, right? and, there, like, and there have been rip-offs. Okay. <laughs> yeah, there have been... Uh, the, the Castlevania Lords of Shadow game has a few Shadow of the Colossus levels. I guess okay. there's no other way to do it. <laughs> uh, they re-released it for PS3 a ways back and sort it, of up the textures a little. Right. But now they're doing a full remastering. They're, they're redrawing it, essentially. So, so as a big fan of the game, this is the, the second time they've just re-released the exact same game. Are you cool with that? Do you want to see them do something new with the franchise? Well, they tried to do something new. They made The Last Guardian, and it took them like ten years, and it wasn't a very good game. Really? Okay. Yeah. So they're doubling back, I guess, and going for some of that easy money. As somebody who's already bought the game twice? No, I'm really annoyed. And I, I saw that headline, I'm like, oh, God, Shadow of the Colossus. Well, I'm not going to buy it again. And then they played the trailer, and it looks gorgeous. Yeah. And just, like, the lighting and the shadows and some, like, it just looks incredible. 
And I had such an emotional response to that game, which, which is what it, it does. Like, that, right. that's not just... It's shamelessly going for an emotional response. But I want that response again, and I love that it could look better. I mean, I took a look at a video that sort of compared the shots in the new trailer with shots from the original PS2 game, and it was like... When you when you looked at the original game, it was like looking at this through like a muddy puddle, you know, that just looks terrible in comparison with what this one, this new PS4 version yeah. looks like. And, and you don't remember it looking that muddy, because in your head, yeah. it, it always looked that awesome. But looking back, like some games, the, like because of a distinctive art style, they age really well. Some like this, it tried to make it as realistic as it could at the time. And that doesn't carry over anymore. Right. Now it just looks silly. With this remastering, it looks gorgeous again. I don't want to buy it again. <laughs> I don't know that I'll be able to resist. Hmm. All right, so then the, the last thing that we wanted to talk about from this batch of uh, E3 games was the Spider-Man game. Now, that was announced at the previous E3, but there wasn't much info, wasn't much gameplay. Yeah. And there's been Spider-Man games before. We've never been thrilled. Yeah, I mean, there have been some exceptions, like the Ultimate Spider-Man game. I have a real soft yeah. spot for that one, where just, just the idea of being able to web-sling around at New York, you don't have to fight people. You can just sort of enjoy the cityscape. <laughs> I found it immensely relaxing. Uh, but this game looks... Like, we don't we don't have a ton of info about it, but we got to see some actual gameplay. And it looks very much in the, the Arkham style of Batman games, where you have to... What's the word? Connect a bunch of attacks... Yeah, you're doing combos. Combos. It's it's got that Arkham style of combat where like, you jump into a group of enemies and you start. Like, there's certain buttons in sequence you can press to do combos. But because it's Spider-Man, he's doing all these kinds of cool web stuff. Yeah, he's webbing people into walls or like stringing them up to the ceiling. Or... You're, the word I was looking for was chain. You're chaining these attacks. Together. Okay, you're, all right. Like, you're pressing X, X, and then triangle X. And you've got to do all these hits, and you're jumping from one enemy to another as they surround you. But then you also web them up to walls, and you can drop things on them and it looks really neat yeah i think it in some ways it suits spider-man better than batman it's certainly he, he's certainly like a more athletic like maybe agile is the word i'm looking for like yeah. we, we picture spider-man being fast and zipping around yeah and that really suits this you know the equivalent in arkham to some of the web slinging stuff was the grappling hook right which is fine but this definitely like swing like we see the helicopter chase where he's swinging through the city chasing the he- like that looks like a blast definitely uh, didn't know what to make of the villain of Mr. Negative. I was going to ask you about him because I was like, who the heck is Mr. <laughs> Negative? Uh, you didn't seem to know very much about him either. He's a relatively new character. Yeah, he's, um, he's basically Two-Face. Yeah. Just in the Marvel Universe. Um, I'm mean, Asian. Yes, which is always good he's to Asian. diversify the I, cast but it's just more. It's so clearly, they said, let's take Two-Face and make him Asian. <laughs> and that's it. That's all that went into this character. I'm sorry. It, it just, it's... I'll do some reading, and we'll get back to you, and I'll let you know what I think about him. You can, you can Google Mr. Negative and look it up. You can see for yourself. To be fair, a lot of this is also revolving around the Kingpin. Right. Okay, so <laughs> the Kingpin is going to be in it, and that, that's a much more traditional Spider-Man. It's, it looks mm-hmm. like it's sort of like enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right. He's in jail, and uh, presumably Spider-Man put him there in uh, the very opening of the game, and now Mr. Negative is taking over uh, the Kingpin's territory, and uh, Spider-Man has to like work with the Kingpin to yeah. stop this guy. Also... Post-credits thing from that, we saw Miles Morales. Who's Miles Morales is the ultimate Spider-Man. Yeah, so P- if Peter Parker and Miles Morales are in, like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it'll be, I wonder if it's just going to be a tease like that, or if he's going to be a more prominent role. We'll have to see. 
Okay, so that's like half our show, but that's a quick takeaway from all the stuff in E3. Um, one last thing we wanted to jump on briefly, technically our number four on the list, is Nintendo announced a couple of new Metroid games. So give us the background which, on Metroid. This, this is yeah. one of the original Nintendo this franchises. This is one of the original Nintendo franchises, and it's kind of the red-headed stepchild, because it does well over here, but it doesn't do well in Japan. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Why? Why is? Why would that be? It's just it just doesn't catch on over there. I don't know. I don't know why. That's weird. Because it seems like it would. I don't know. To me, it looks like some of the more popular animes, and yet. Well, I mean, it's it's a weird. It's a dis- when in Metroid is at its best. It's a very distinct style of game where I mean, it's traditionally two dimensional, but it's about exploration. It's sort of about dread, about being alone in this big maze, right? And trying to figure things out. We it's- talked a little about this before. Uh, because there was a fan remake of Metroid 2 uh, a ways back. Like Nintendo cease and desisted. And we were kind of we a little salty about it because <laughs> Nintendo hasn't made a good Metroid game for a long time. Literally, it's been seven years since a proper Metroid game at this point. Yeah. They, they And after those last year, they said, okay, finally, here comes a Metroid game. They made this like first-person shooter spin-off. Right, what, do, like, it didn't really have Samus in it, right? No, it, was it didn't. Just like no. A, she, she sort of had a cameo appearance, and you were playing as other guys. It, it was very... I've been trying to come up with an analogy to describe it. It's just a weird idea. So the fans hated it, because it wasn't the Metroid game they wanted, and also it was a lousy game. It's got like 5 out of 10s, mm. that kind of thing. It did not move. It sold something like 4,000 units in Japan. Yikes. That's, that's not enough. <laughs> but they announced two new Metroid games at E3. Uh, they announced... You know, so. First off, they announced Metroid Prime 4, and that's it. So Metroid Prime was a sort of relaunch of the franchise on GameCube, and then they carried on into Wii. It was a trilogy of games. Yeah, and, and uh, they're, they're like, it got critically acclaimed. It took the same sort of style and made it a first-person shooter as opposed to a side-scroller. Well, it made it first-person, but not a shooter. You spend a lot of time in that game solving puzzles and, and exploring and just like looking at ruins and going... Yeah, it was a really, it was really unique in what it was. Um, and th- now there's a fourth one coming, and that's it. I'm not a big fan of this. They they played the theme song from Metroid Prime, and they put up a four, and that was it. Yeah. That's, that's not an announcement. <laughs> like, we, I mean, it's an announcement in like the barest bones definition of the word announcement. But I feel like that like that shouldn't count. That shouldn't be enough to bring to a trade convention show, right? You know. So, but the it, other, it would be like if Zack Snyder came out and said, "I'm making a movie." <laughs> Well, that would... Never mind. I don't want to bash Zack Snyder any more than we already have. And I'm sure we will be doing more of that later. Later on. Yeah. Um, But the other thing that they announced was a proper remake of... uh, Yeah, of of Metroid 2, 2. which is why they sent the cease and desist to that fan-made game. Um, Metroid 2 Sam... uh, Not Metroid. Just Metroid Samus Returns, a remake of Metroid 2, The Return of Samus. (laughs) It's coming out on 3DS soon. Like, September September 2017. They're calling it a reimagination of the game. Whereas essentially it's sort of the same sequence of events, but it's going to have a new environment. It's going to have new stuff you can do. The, it, the graphics looked amazing for what it is. It's certainly a huge step up. Yeah, Metroid 2 Return of Samus came out on the, the original Game Boy in 1991. Yeah, I mean... So just, there's a big difference. Just to give you a sense of how it's been sort of the forgotten franchise, the first game uh, came out, and then there was a five-year gap. That came out on the NES. Then there was a five-year gap before this, the sequel, was released on the Game Boy. And then a few years after that, they finally did a Super Nintendo one. But it seems kind of... 
I don't know. It yeah, in, like, in that time, like six Mario games yeah. came out. And it seems so. sort of backhanded to be like, all right, well, you'll get a, a, a sequel, but it's going to be on the black and white handheld console that we have, not on our proper in-house system. Yeah, it uh, it's definitely, it's been nicked. And it's because of that, it's got a weird cult following because people want to see more Metroid so badly. Yeah. Uh, the best place to play, you know, play as Samus lately has been in Smash Brothers. But nope, these two new games are coming. We could talk a lot about Samus Returns, but honestly, the biggest part of it is watching it because it looks really cool. It's very stylized, and otherwise, it's a Metroid game. We've talked about those before. So if you want to find out more about that, you can check that out. So next on the list is another in the long line of movies that are being turned into TV shows. Quick departure from E3, by the yeah. way. <laughs> So, uh, John Wick came out a, a few years ago. It's this a crazy gun-fu action movie with Keanu Reeves. Yeah, Keanu Reeves out of nowhere. Yeah, he was amazing. And it, 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 did, it took Keanu Reeves and did what Keanu Reeves does best, which is look sort of grumpy and shoot people and yeah. not talk a lot. Yeah, he yeah he gets annoyed at the start of this movie and then proceeds to shoot the entire Russian mafia. Right, and it's <laughs> and it's great. It's, a, it's a joy. It's a revenge movie. Like it's 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 designed in that way to make you go, yeah, yeah, take that bad guys. Keanu Reeves is gonna take you down. But then it also just sort of sprinkled in this sort of weird assassin mythology in it. Where yeah, it's they they're all staying at this hotel. Where they all know each other, and they're all like everything they do is it's not it's for money, I guess, but it's for these weird gold coins, right? And, and it's never explained. Yeah, and there's there's these uh, ground rules for how uh, assassination uh, protocols work, and like who can do it, and when, and how many people can go on a. Yeah, it's a never job. it's never explained to us, but the characters refer to it and seem to operate, and it gives us these hints of this massive, super cool world. Yeah. And then John Wick 2 came out uh, this past year, and it, it fleshed that out a bit more and gave you a bit more about the, the hotel that and the chain of hotels that uh, Keanu Reeves works from and that they, all these assassins uh, sort of meet in. And now they're planning on doing a TV series set in that hotel chain. Which is perfect. Yeah. then you can have different characters, you can have different stories, and the hotels can even be in different countries. It's interesting, but... Uh, Primarily because we don't know a ton about it yet. We know the the creator of John Wick is on board. He's going to be sort of like a showrunner and might direct a couple episodes. But he's also working on the next John Wick movie. And he's got Atomic Blonde with uh, Charlize Theron coming out soon. So he's he's a busy guy these days. But it'll be interesting to see how much involvement he has. They don't have a network uh, attached to it yet, so we really don't know a ton of what the series is going to be. It yeah. could be anything from you know a serialized story about some character using the hotel, or it could be like The Love Boat, where there's a new person coming to the hotel chain every episode. A different assassin and a different story. Both of those I would follow. But I'm really compelled to learn more about that world. As cool as John Wick himself is, yeah, it's an, it, it. They found a way to do. I mean, they they had a lot of awesome gunplay, but they found a way to make a really interesting place mm -hmm. that I want to learn more about. Yeah. Anyway, it looks like it's going to be a blast. We don't know anything about it yet, which is a shame. I would love to know more, but I imagine they're probably still writing it. Yeah, yeah still conceiving it. Yeah, we'll find out more about that as we go. Number two on our list, also sort of a movie to television story. Kind of. Comic book to movie to television. Yeah. Um, th they want to make a television show for HBO of The Watchmen. Now, a lot of that is very exciting to nerds like us. Like, Watchmen is this great comic book. HBO has uh, got a great track record of turning material into excellent TV shows. 
But this is a particularly tricky set of stories to turn into a TV series. Yeah. To turn into live action at all. It to turn it, even in the movie, like I thought the movie was okay, but it definitely did not carry the same spirit as the book. Yeah. Because you couldn't. It's written and presented in such a way that it just it doesn't suit that form of media. It's it's a comic book that is very subtly about comic books, so it's hard to translate that into a movie without losing something. Yeah. And, you know, a TV series is is a better place to do it because uh, they're both serialized storytelling. But I still worry that they're going to miss stuff. Yeah. So this guy, the guy behind this is Damon Lindelof. Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah. He, so he's got uh, sort of a big name. He, was, he became semi-famous uh, from his work on Lost. He was one of the big brains behind it uh, as it went on. Which is a mixed blessing. Yeah. Ultimately, it ended up being a mixed blessing. But for a while there, he was like a go-to guy for any of these scripts. Mm -hmm. He worked on a ton of stuff. And then he uh, just finished uh, running his own show called The Leftovers, which I think was about the rapture. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, yeah. And then the people, well, you think it's about the rapture and some people who are left behind. Yeah. Got it. Okay, yeah, I've heard of that. Um, he sounds like he's a big fan of the comic. Like he's come out and talked about how great it is and like, wants to do. He talked about how much he loved it long before there was any possibility of him being involved in it. You know, he was saying that it it inspired his storytelling style. Yeah, to a point where he's saying like, regarding the show, a quote from him is, "It's okay with me if people don't understand it because they don't deserve to understand it." <laughs> Which is, like, I understand that that's something that's meant to be a balm to people who are big fans of the graphic novel. But at the same time, it'd be kind of like getting Star Wars Kid to direct a Star Wars movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I really am sort of tentative about this. I, I'm one of those guys who I don't really think they should do anything with the Watchmen stories. They should just leave it alone. And yet, in recent years, they've been doing more and more with it, creating more stuff with the characters. They did the this before Watchmen series of miniseries, and uh, now they're trying to incorporate the characters into the main DC universe, and I just don't like the idea of any of it. Yeah, something about Watchmen is such... But I, I, in the head canon, I can believe that that universe, like it comes into existence at the start of the Watchmen and it ends at the end of it. Like it's such a complete story. Yeah, anything ancillary to it is just going to taint it. Yeah, because it's such a perfect package. It's it's very distinctive. And they've been talking about how this show could serve as a replacement to Game of Thrones when it goes off the air. How it could be HBO's next big. Yeah, that thing. every other television show wants to make the new big Game of Thrones, but. I don't know, like, like if you're going to do it properly, a 12-episode series, do, do one episode for every comic book that's in the original miniseries, and end it. But then how do you do, like, the stuff with the artists on the island, and the pirate stuff? Hey, they, the, did like... it, they did it in 12 issues in a comic book. If you can't turn one issue of a comic book into an hour of TV, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, maybe. And I, I don't know, I... I am really worried that they're going to try and stretch it into, like, seven seasons, and I just... Yeah, there's not seven seasons worth of material there. No, you're going to have to start using stuff from the before Watchmen comics or making new stuff, and if you think you can add to the genius that is that comic, you're you're deluding yourself. And Zack Snyder did a a fine job with, with the first Watchmen movie, the only Watchmen movie, but it's nowhere near as good as the comic, and and it's like he didn't get the right 
message from the comics, I no, feel. No, not at all. Yeah. He missed the underlying... <laughs> he, he got the surface layer. Yeah. And it was fun to watch. Like, yes. It was an exciting like, superhero-y adventure with dark tones. But he missed the whole commentary part of what The Watchmen is about. And did he miss it, or did he deliberately say, like, there's no way I can make this into a movie? It's way too deep. Well, that's I mean, a it, conversation it, for another time. It depends time, how much credit you want to give Zack Snyder. But yeah, we're, whereas we're excited for John Wick, we're a little worried about this one. But we'll see where it goes. Number one. Holy moly. This is huge. Huge news. Han Solo. Hi, Maz. No. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> so how do we even do this? Chronologically, so it starts where the, so the Han Solo standalone movie. I still think it's a bad idea, by the way. So I'm feeling a little, you know, we're going well, to divide here. Um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller from Twenty One Jump Street are directing it. Are fired by Lucasfilm. Yeah, not like we decided to part and but they were fired. Four months into production of the movie. Yeah, I read somewhere they were three quarters of their way done through principal photography. That's a lot of filming yeah. to fire the directors over. And at this point, it'd be like firing the chef when he's putting the icing on the cake. <laughs> like, it's already there and you decide you don't like it? I don't know. There's a lot of rumors going around about why, but stuff mostly from Variety and a few other sources are reporting that the directors, they were really clashing with Kathleen Kennedy and Lawrence Kasdan, the, the head of Lucasfilm and the executive producer. Yeah, so Lawrence Kasdan, he's a screenwriter. I think he wrote the script for this, and he wrote Empire Strikes Back and the first Indiana Jones movie. He's He's got a lot of cred. Yeah, and Kathleen Kennedy, too, has yes. been, like, in, a wor- in the world we're in now where movies have to be very carefully coordinated, she's one of the three people who's coordinating all of Star Wars. It's an important but job. It's a very important job. But what the like, but what the things are, what people are saying is that this directing style of these guys was a lot more sort of relaxed. They're saying they're encouraging their actors to do improv, to be a little more cheeky, like to really sort of feel it, which means uh, rela- you know, relaxing those controls. Now, on the one hand, I get it. It's Star Wars. You need you want to control it because you want to have a very specific thing. But on the other hand, it's the Han Solo movie. And Harrison Ford is famous for improvising a lot of everything we love about Han Solo. Yeah. Uh, so, you gotta have... Uh, well, and the other thing is, you have to know what you're getting when you hire these guys, right? Like, it's not like they came with zero track record. Yeah. You know, they should have known that this was gonna happen. And they, maybe they thought they could make it work. Apparently, they couldn't. I mean, so, the other thing about this is, you know, you were saying you, you weren't sure if that this should even have been made in the first place, right? Yes. And I, I agree with that. But the one caveat I've always had in the back of my mind is that these guys are the kings of taking what should otherwise be a bad idea and turning it into gold. They did 21 Jump Street, which was a okay TV series, and they turned it into a hilarious movie. Then they did a sequel, and I was like, why would you do a sequel to it? And they did a hilarious sequel that plays on all the tropes of doing sequels. Then they did the Lego movie. Who would have thought you could make a movie about Lego, and they made a brilliant movie about Lego? So, if anyone could do it, it was probably these guys. Apparently not. I guess not. So they're out. Um, And Ron Howard is in. Yeah, it's like, oh, we just... We, we need someone to just finish off this movie. Who are we going to get? Oh, one of the greatest directors who's ever lived. <laughs> you know what? Yeah, one of the greatest directors who's ever lived, but also fundamentally, like, diametrically opposed in terms of style. Right. 
at least in directing style, you know, he's he's very much the proper director, you know, what you ex- when you think of a director, you probably picture Ron Howard. Maybe. I feel like they said, who can we hire that will give us the least amount of trouble and do exactly what we want? And if that's the kind of approach they're taking with a movie where most of it is already in the can, I don't know, guys. It, uh, I, I said it on the site. We got a bad feeling about this. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting pick. Like they, they, It'll be interesting to see how the two styles mesh together. But the other thing about this is this is the second... Uh, Star Wars anthology, anthology movie. movie, and it's the second time they've had big problems with the director they initially hired. True. Gareth Edwards, who was the director of Rogue One, who ended up staying for the whole movie and did the press tour and everything, apparently he was sort of removed and they brought in Tony Gilroy to finish off the movie and do a bunch of reshoots on it. So that it, it's starting to add up to a bit of a troubling pattern. If you keep hiring these directors with distinct visions and styles, you and then can't you, keep firing them. Yeah, you, it, if you, you hire someone with a distinct vision and style, and then they do what they want and not what you want. Well, if you wanted to do what you want, you know, like, I'm not going to say you do it, but <laughs> like, obviously you're picking this person for a reason. Yeah, so let them do their thing. But on the other hand, I mean, it, but like, the control of a huge franchise like Star Wars. Like the equivalent, the only other equivalent really would be Marvel. Like, you know, directors don't have a lot of wiggle room in those movies either because they're very strictly controlled to make sure they all line up, they'll have the same feeling, they're all in the same place. Mm-hmm. And those are really good movies. It's it seems like with the Marvel style, they've they're running it more like a TV show does. Yeah, where the directors just come in and and work on the single episodes and they they have to fit the style that's already established and then they leave and they they let the series continue whereas with most films the director shapes everything and then it's it's done and then another director comes on and makes a new vision but it's like that's not the way things are anymore the director like it looks it doesn't have as much power as they used to not not with these big tentpole franchise movies yeah. anyway so it's spooky um yeah. again i mean i'm biased i don't I'm not interested in the Han Solo movie. I, don't, I think it's a dumb idea. I think there's a lot of better things you could do. But we're going ahead with it. So Han Solo movie, what's going to happen to it? It'll certainly come out. But is Ron Howard going to try to edit all the improvisation and cheekiness out? Is he like how many reshoots is he going to do? How is it going to change? It, it's a little fingernail bitey. It'll be interesting to see how the press tour goes too, because you know this has been so public. Every member of the press is going to be asking about the difference between the the original directors and Ron Howard and yeah. why they got fired and what they thought about them being fired. Like who gets the byline, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, that's been a big talk as far as the Directors Guild goes. Uh, I read somewhere that if they had finished filming 90% of the movie, they'd be entitled to do a director's cut. It doesn't sound like they hit 90%, but that would have been interesting, yeah. too, to see a... But then you start running into, like, Blade Runner problems, where you have, like, six different cuts. Of the, or Superman 2, which maybe yeah. is a better example. I just, it's like, man, at some point I just want to watch a movie. I don't want to have to, you know, take a course in it. Right. In any case, those are the top five cool things we had this week. Uh, we'll be right back with our special, a very special guest segment we had a blast with. Uh, so please stay tuned. Welcome to the second half of this episode of Geek Top 5. 
And this week we've got a very special guest with us whose career ranges from roles where you're a completely physical performance without hearing your voice at all to roles where you're just your voice and there's no physical performance. I can't think of many more diverse performers than that. Today we've got David Fraser with us. Hello. Thanks for being with us. So I guess from one end of that, that's I guess it's voice actor, and on the other end, it's puppeteer. Or uh, no, I'm not a puppeteer. Mm-hmm. I have been inside a bodysuit. Yeah, I've had a. I've been in, in a bodysuit, and a puppeteer has manipulated my face. That's the turtles. Ah, yeah, okay. Right. But I haven't done any puppeteering. So spoiler alert. I guess that's the first one. Well. Uh, that's going to be number one. Let's let's All right. let's bury the lead here. Let's, oh, let's okay. I let the cat out of the bag. Did I? <laughs> a little bit of a tease. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm new to this whole thing. So let's let's go through a quick lightning round. I, I went through your IMDb. It was okay. not an exhaustive search, but I just want like quick thoughts on some of these roles. So let's go with the bizarre. Oh, bizarre! That was the John Biner. I think was the. Uh, the, the comedian involved in that was it. The <laughs> first thing I did when I came to Toronto after graduating from, from university, except for a Miller beer ad. No, what brought me to town was to do a Miller beer spot was when Miller was launched in Canada. So I did three or four spots for them. And then the first TV show I got was Bizarre. And I played, I think it was, gosh, this is going back to the 80s, but I think I was baseball fan number three or something like that. <laughs> I had to catch a baseball and be all excited. And then John did something funny. And, uh, and that was it. That was my day. So that's basically what I remember from that. Wow. Okay, so what's with the Miller Beer commercials? Like, you, you came from out west, right? Yeah. What happened was I graduated from the University of Alberta. And then they had these audition rounds here at Ryerson where they brought all the grads, or they invited all the grads. They didn't bring them. Invited all the grads from across Canada to come and do a, a big audition for the local you know, casting directors and uh, theater directors and all that kind of stuff. So my, my now wife, then girlfriend, Marilyn, who uh, graduated at the same class as myself, we came out here and we did these auditions. And both of us got work out of it. We actually did the, the first Dream in the Park, the Shakespeare. The no. year. So we were both in that. But uh, at the same time, we got agents. And even though we both had jobs back west in the fall, we got our agents. And uh, I, I, I auditioned for this Miller Beer ad. They were bringing Miller Beer to Canada. And uh, it was a huge campaign, and I got uh, a job in it, and they ended up making at least a half a dozen of these things out of a three-day shoot, and most importantly for me, paid off all my student loans. Hey, okay. All my student loans paid off, one job, three days work. It was just so lucky. (laughs) Did you did you get like a lifetime supply of Miller as well? No, actually, I developed a taste and I developed a, a dislike for the product after that. <laughs> after three straight days, yeah, of I, yeah. I wasn't that interested anymore. No, <laughs> most students kidding. end up more in debt after three straight days of drinking beer. The, the, the other thing was the, the American version of Miller beer I liked quite a bit. The Canadian version tasted different. That's weird. It's kind of like Target when it was in the states it was great. Comes up here, and mm. well, I will. What else is on that lightning round list? Okay, uh, this lightning round is. <laughs> <laughs> a little bogged down. So much leaning. Uh, so Kung Fu, the legend continues. Okay, so I played, uh, I think, a director on that, and I worked with, um, I didn't get to work with... Um, David? David Caradine, but, oh. I, but I didn't meet him. He was on set that day, but I didn't get to work with him. A very interesting fellow. Um, uh, and it was a very quick scene over, very quickly played a director of an episode or something. Okay, uh, so... Casino Jack, where you played Carl Rove. Oh, that was so fun. Um, First of all, I had to play Carl older than I am, okay? Mm -hmm. And Carl had blonde hair that turned gray when he got older. So first they had to bleach my hair, and then they had to gray it on set. So the day they bleached my hair, I went to the school to pick up my daughter at school, and absolutely nobody there recognized me. (laughs) 
No, but not even my daughter. She walked out, looked at me, looked around, you know. Anyway, that's, that's one of my favorite memories of that. Second favorite memory of that was the first time I saw um, Spacey, Kevin Spacey on set. He was uh, coming out of wardrobe. I had just arrived for my first day. He was coming out of wardrobe and heading back to his trailer, and he had no pants on. <laughs> huh. very, com- very confident man. A very confident man. He had no pants. But he had dress shoes on. That was really nice. Oh, okay. That makes sense. How did he get the pants off? I have <laughs> no idea. I didn't ask any questions. Very talented man. Yep. Okay. Great guy, by the way. Oh, cool. I mean, how long was that shoot? That was a three-day shoot for me as well. Spaced out over about a month, month and a half, something like that. No, actually, yeah. Beginning to the end of summer. Uh, it was a long shoot, but I shot at the beginning and I shot at the end. So I had to keep the blonde hair for about three and a half months. It was very weird. Okay, and then uh, one of your more recent credits is on the Kiefer Sutherland okay. show, Designated Survivor. Designated Survivor, yeah. I played uh, one of the reporters in the scrum who drops a, a, a bomb uh, that has to be dealt with by everybody. And, not a literal uh, bomb? Not a literal on bomb. That show. Oh, right. yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, no, no. An informational bomb about uh, something that the administration is doing and covering up, and uh, I have an inside source, and I dropped that a bit of information, and uh, Cal Penn, the fellow that plays the, uh, the press reporter, uh, the, the spicer, of that, of that group, uh, he has to then do some quick tap dancing around it and figure out how I figured out that information. And uh, but it was a lot of fun. I never got to meet Kiefer on that one. He wasn't there that day, so well, I was uh, in and out. You did get to meet Kumar of Harold and Kumar. That's right. So and that's that's pretty cool too. Yeah, he's a real smart guy. That's what I found out on that day. I, I mean, he worked. He actually worked in politics for a while, right? Yeah, yeah. He worked for in the Obama the administration. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah, yeah. No, he's a, he's a he's a clever monkey. That one. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's move on to the the meat of the the conversation here. You were in the Oscar-winning film Spotlight. I was, yeah. What was what was your role? What what was that like? I played the uh, lawyer for the for the Boston Globe, the the newspaper that was trying to um, get these hidden documents uh, released so that they could write a story on what the Catholic Church uh, or certain priests in the Catholic Church were doing. And, um, yeah, so my role was to play that lawyer. I got to uh, work with some great people, just fantastic um, people. Liev Schreiber, uh, who is an amazing, amazing actor and very fun to work with. Ruffalo, Mark Ruffalo. And uh, who else was there? Uh, oh, Batman himself, um, uh, Michael Keaton. Oh, the Batman. The yeah. Batman. Not just a Batman. No, no, <laughs> the Batman, Michael Keaton. And, uh, and uh, Stanley Tucci. Who was another wow. uh, favorite actor of mine too? So he's uh, amazing. It was fun. That was a great. And the, the uh, writer director of that, uh, Tom McCarthy, was amazing to work with. And uh, the head writer on that was the head writer on West Wing, one of my favorite shows. Wow. Who, uh, yeah, he, it was just a great experience. And so that shot in and around Toronto, right? Toronto Hamilton. Yeah. So I got to sleep in my own bed at night. Nice. So that was good. But yeah, it was an exciting shoot, and it was really thrilling to be a part of something that ended up, like you said, winning the Oscar. So what was that like? Were you were you sitting at home? Did you have the TV on? Yep. We were did, watching. And did you have uh, high expectations? No, we didn't think we were going to win because Di- DiCaprio did the uh, the Revenant. Right. And that was getting all of the buzz. And we just assumed it was late. Like, that show went long. But my wife and my daughter and I were all sitting in the chairs watching. Oh, it's got to get to the end. And I'm sure Leo's going to win it. And, you know, it'll be great. And then they announced it. And we all jumped up and screamed and yelled and... I started texting people from the show, and it was yeah, it was really fun. It was surprising and fun, and and I really did think it deserved to win. It was a, I think it's a great film. Now the content of the film is less fun, 
Um, is there any like <laughs> that's one way to put it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Getting into that, is there any reservations? Is there anything about that that sort of like, that challenges you a little more than a more casual role from an actor's point of view? Mm-hmm. No, not really. Because first of all, I'm not Catholic, um, although my wife and daughter are, and m- my role in that was just to dis- to discover the truth of the situation, to find out, to get to the bottom of it. And so morally, yeah, as as, a, as an audience member, and, and when I first read it. Um, I thought, yeah, I'm not sure this is going to work. I'm not sure people are going to want to see this. It's also a very talky movie, and I didn't know if it would have any impact in terms of, you know, the visual uh, as film is, is, you know, known for. But um, I, I think Tom McCarthy is an amazing director, and I think he did a great job with it. It moves, and, and it, it, it has so much going, going on in it, um, and he just keeps the whole thing, the whole ball moving forward, and all the performers are, were so good and so invested in, in discovering, the, you know, getting to the bottom of this situation. Um, the interesting thing about this film, too, is that when the story first broke, it was a big story that for lasted for, what, like a day or two days, and then 9-11 happened, and it buried it. And so right. it was gone, and that's why it took so long to resurface again, because it was just drowned out. But no, from my perspective, it was just, you know, it was a job, and I was happy to do it. Okay, so next thing on the list is uh, is RoboCop Prime Directives. Yeah, it's a four-part miniseries. Yeah, yeah. four-part miniseries. They're all about an hour and a half each, so like yep. feature-length uh, episodes. Yep. Not so your typical miniseries. Yeah, and the, and the miniseries, uh, my friend Julian Grant, it was his brainchild. He put it together and uh, directed and produced it. It was a great character for me to play. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but the character I play is, he's a computer nerd. You know a little bit about that. (laughs) Just a wee bit. You know a little bit. Both of those words. (laughs) Um, But he develops this sentient um, uh, artificial intelligence. And uh, it becomes, basically, he uses, I I think, I can't remember the exact science that went into it, but he uses, his child died, and somehow he got his child's DNA into this, so this, this entity becomes his child. And it uh, then gets corrupted and distorted and used for nefarious purposes. And, uh, and plus, I was uh, uh, first time I ever got to play somebody who was physically um, challenged. So there was a, I had an, a leg problem, and so I had a cane. And so he's quite an odd character, very different than anything I'd played up to that point in time. And, uh, and it was a great job. It lasted for two or three months, and, uh, and working with those folks were... It was exciting. The writers were great. Brad and Joe were terrific. And, uh, yeah, that was fun. I loved it. So what uh, did you get a chance to interact with RoboCop himself at all? Oh, my God, yeah. There's two RoboCops in it, right? There's, right. there's a regular RoboCop, and then there's sort of evil, twisted RoboCop. I, f- I forget his, his designation now. It was like Robo Caliber or something. It was like I, I was reading up on yeah, it, and I watched some clips on that. Morris Dean Wint was the actor who played the part, <laughs> um, and his suit was all black. I guess because you make him the bad little cop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there was a showdown between myself and him, and I threw my cane at him, and, of course, it broke, and it didn't work, and yeah. uh, he chases <laughs> us. through the, the, the end of this film, it was so, so disappointing. The end of this film was supposed to take, take place at the top of one of those bank buildings downtown. Hmm. There okay. was helicopters. There was wind machines. There was uh, all these lights and special effects, and we had a lightning storm the day we were going to shoot. And we couldn't go up onto the roof. So we had to bring it inside. And, and, and Julian, the director, had to re-envision the entire thing 
on the fly. Wow. And we had to go inside That's the building a and find a, a way to vi- make this visually interesting and to have a long chase sequence. And I'm, I'm rescuing the little girl at this time, or I'm trying to rescue the little girl. Robocop really does the rescuing. But, <laughs> right. But, but my That's character, what they think. We know that you did yeah, most of the rescue. Ed Hobley was the real hero of that story. <laughs> um, yeah, so they had to redo everything and, and reimagine it in order to get it shot that night because, you know, there's no second night to go up in the building. Uh, but there was wind and lightning and stuff. We couldn't go up there. The helicopter couldn't take off. So, unfortunately, we couldn't do this great dramatic ending. I'm sorry, just to double check. You're playing a character who walks with a cane. Did you say the character's name was Ed Hobley? You caught that, did you? <laughs> was that the, a subtle point on the... Uh... Like I said, the, the writers were very good, and they, they knew how to capture character in many different ways. <laughs> so, uh, so that was four episodes, and it all shot at one time. You know, you were, you were like... It was yeah, for sure going to happen. It, it, they were, you were, we were contracted for the full four, Yeah, they, 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 that, which is rare. Um, but they had a contract for all four, and we shot over about, gosh, I'm going to say about four months. And you seem like the sort of character where you straddled that line of good and evil. You were sort of like... Uh, no, actually, my guy was good. Good? My guy he was working for the bad guys, right? Yeah, but he, he was... Okay, so here's the thing. When you're a scientist or a computer geek and you don't have the resources to create the big machines and somebody else has all the money, sometimes you have to work for them, Okay. And so that's what happens. But then at a certain point when I realized just how evil and bad everybody is, then, you know, I, I, I went back to my good-natured root, good, good roots and uh, tried to become the hero again. But no, it was all about trying to develop the science of this thing. And he had a personal investment because, like I said, there was something DNA-wise, I can't remember again the science, where the actual uh, artificial intelligence had something to do with, the, you know, his child. So there was a personal connection and, uh, yeah. So with something like that, do you have much say in the creation of the character? Do you get were you involved in that side of things, or I think what what happens is as, as you move through the series, because I'm pretty sure we shot them in, in sequence. Um, there was a couple of times where myself, the director, and the writer sat down, and, and we were looking at how the character ends up, and there was sort of a sort of a grayish middle area, and uh, I had some suggestions for that, and, and some of them they accepted, and some of them they didn't. <laughs> But um, that was the only part where I was I was trying to bridge that 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 character arc to, cha- to make that change from being somebody who just does what the corporations say to do and yes I will do what you say to somebody who's at the end you know throwing canes at uh, RoboCop. So there was a part in the middle where we it was just sort of left open as to why he made these decisions and we sort of um, made some changes. But most of the stuff just came straight from Brad and Joe and and Julian. So and again and just so. It's just because I want to put the image clearly in my mind. So you throw your cane at RoboCop. Yes, I do. And he does what? Okay, so here's what really Wait. happened. <laughs> okay, so we shot out of sequence, and in one, uh, the final shot of my character, I didn't have my cane. What was, go- what was supposed to happen was we had to climb a ladder up to the roof. I couldn't climb with my cane, so I would throw the cane away and get up there. We'd have the climax without mm. the cane. Well, because we had to shoot that out of sequence, I, would, I had my cane during the point where I wouldn't have had the cane. So we had to find a reason to get rid of the cane. Right, you're not on the roof anymore. That's yeah. right. Now yeah. we're inside and I didn't have to climb a ladder. That's what it was. I think that is better. I think the, the, the throwing the cane at RoboCop, like how many people can say they've done that? I tossed and it. not gotten shot after. Yeah. That's, the, that's the key. Wait, <laughs> did, you, did you survive? You, you I lived, yeah. Okay. I, I made it right through to the end. Yeah. Awesome. Well... 
Let's get into the the meat of the real like geek topics here. Not not to disparage RoboCop at all, <laughs> but we're getting and into RoboCop's it. pretty. I mean, maybe with the exception of the last movie, RoboCop's pretty cool. We can definitely. Uh, but let's let's go into some Sailor Moon talk. Here. Okay. Yeah. So do you so so how did this come about? You you and who did you play on Sailor Moon? My main character was Grandpa, uh, Sailor Venus's grandfather, and uh, but I played. I don't know, maybe twenty characters on this thing. And this is the, this is the cartoon series. This is the series from the nineties. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. The original. Yeah. So what happened was they. Uh, this is. Um, I, I was hired as basically part of a loop group. Okay. You guys know what that is? The loop group is always brought in once once you've got a final version of something, a show, a movie, or whatever. When you've got a crowd scene and you have to fill in all those voices, so the loop group comes in and they do the crowd scenes in the restaurants and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's all basically improv. In this situation, we were the loop group, so we would be, you know, crowds in the square saying, oh, well, look, there's sailor people, or whatever. <laughs> and, uh, and at the same time, there'd be small characters that would say, hey, my name is, you know, whatever. And so they were just assigned as we went along. So Grandpa was one of those characters. They were like, oh, David, you do it. Okay. So there was a couple of uh, lines, you know, mostly just a, hey, how are you doing? Kind of a thing. <laughs> and then gone. And uh, then about a month later... They got in more episodes because they all came over from Japan, right? And then we revoiced the mirror, and suddenly he was a bigger part. So I kept being brought back to play more and more of Grandpa. But then again, also other characters, other monsters, guys on the street. Actually, when I was going through and finding that stuff, I found this old cassette uh, that they had they had uh, um, sold when the series was still on. Somebody had sent this to me because... One of the characters that I played, a Mr. Something or rather, is, is on it, and he's got a little bio and all, and I'd totally forgotten that that was mm-hmm. one of the characters I played. But so I have that as memorabilia, too. So, Very yeah. Nice. So a lot of little characters I played, but mostly it was Grandpa. So if it wasn't for that loop group thing, the, do you think they would have cast the role of Grandpa differently? I think they if they known? knew it was a bigger part, yeah, they probably would have had auditions the same way they did for all the other leads. Okay. Right? But I don't think they knew at the time. I think because they were getting them in, you know, chunks of three or four or whatever. And uh, he just seemed like a small character in this one episode um, where he says, you know, the other thing about Grandpa, I don't know if I should say this. The other thing about Grandpa, though, is that in Japan, Grandpa is this kind of creepy guy. Okay? I'm not sure how to say it. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. He's a little... He's a little not politically correct. Yeah, very okay? nice. Very yeah. Nice. Uh, so when he transitioned into North America, a lot of those scenes were chopped. So right. I think when that first episode came, there was probably more Grandpa in it that we never saw because it got chopped out. Okay. Okay? So there was just a couple of lines. But then as the series progressed, he became more... He, he trained Chad, the, uh, the young boy, and so he became his trainer. And so there was a lot more things that he had to do beyond the creepy stuff. <laughs> Which just got cut out, and we never actually saw it here. So. Right. So did you have a sense for what the dialogue was in Japanese and what you were doing, or did you just get the English scripts? The way that they um, recorded this is something called the Rhythmo Band. So what, what they do is um, they, they play the already edited uh, cartoon on a big screen in the room that you're in, and running along the top of the, uh, of the visual is written out what the English words are. And it's written in such a way so that you know, because you know those, those cartoon characters, their mouths are either open or closed, right? Ah. So it's just open, la, 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 la. I'm using my hands here as a visual aid. <laughs> Nobody else on, you guys can't see it. But anyway, so what they, then if the word is, is what? 
Okay, but the mouth is open for a long time. They will write W H A A A A A A A A A A A until the mouth closes. So your job is to watch the rhythmal band, watch the screen, and go what? And end at the same right. right time. So it's sort of a karaoke kind of thing. There you go. Yeah, yeah it is exactly like that. So we don't have any idea what they're saying in, in Japanese. You know, it's all just what's written up there and 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 how to keep your sound going when the mouth is open. So Sailor Moon. Has a, it's got a very dedicated fandom. Like There's a lot of people who are really into it. Does any of that ever touch you at all? Like to- Interestingly, not usually, no. But last year, um, they had a Sailor Moon convention here in town. So a friend of mine who was also in the series, and I'm sorry, I forget the name of the character he plays, but his name's Tony Daniels. He was coming up from New York to do this convention, and the woman, Emily, who was running the convention, had asked if he knew anybody in town who would be interested in doing it, and he mentioned my name. So she called me and said, do you want to come and do a convention? And I said, okay, I'm not sure what to do. She said, oh, you know, you just come out, you meet the fans, and uh, you can get some postcards and things or whatever made up. And they like they you know, sign your autograph, and they'll actually give you money for this, and it's really fun. So I called a few of my friends uh, who have done these before, and I said, you know, tell me about these conventions. I don't know anything about them. I don't attend them, and and you know, nobody's ever asked me to be there before, so I didn't know what it was. And they're like, oh, it's really fun. The people are great. They all love the stuff, and just go. And so I took my daughter, who's an actor, and she's 14 at the time, and she sat beside me at my little table. And we met these people who think Sailor Moon is the best thing since, you know, automatic drive. Like, they just love it. And they were really wonderful and really sweet. And it was a wonderful day. I had a great time. Uh, got pictures taken and, you know, signed these little uh, cards I had made up. And, uh, and it was really fun. I actually enjoyed it. I would totally do it again. It was really, I was very nervous about going because I didn't know what to expect. They also had two panels, so we had to sit and answer questions. And what was it like? And you know, um, and one was on actually what it was like to be in the series, and one was all about being a voice actor. So I mean, I do other things besides cartoons and stuff. I do a lot of radio and I do voiceover for TV. So that was fun too to tell people how to get involved. I also teach here at Seneca. I teach voiceover, so that all tied in together for me. So a long-winded answer to your question is yes, I have had that. <laughs> That's the only time any, nobody's ever come up to me on the street and go, hey, are you Grandpa? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's never happened. No. All right. Let's go from one extreme to the other. So that's your, your, probably your geekiest voice acting role. Yeah. Let's go to the, the creme to the creme, the, the thing that will keep a special place in my heart for you for the rest of time. <laughs> you played Michelangelo in the live action Ninja Turtles Part 3. Yes, I did. Let's go. Let's, let's start at the beginning. How... How does this happen? Okay, um, so a casting call goes out. They were sh- okay. Here's what it was: There's, they were making the third movie, and uh, the one of the producers lives in Vancouver. His name is I'm going to say Mr. Chan. I can't remember his first name. Nice fellow, but I can't remember his name. Anyway, he lives in Vancouver, or at that time lived in Vancouver. They wanted him to make the third movie, and my understanding was he said, "Sure, I'll do it as long as we shoot in Vancouver." Which means, because of you know, union rules and uh, how many you know, people need to be involved in a Canadian production or a co-production, um, they decided they would recast all of the turtles in the suits with Canadians. So they went to Vancouver and they went to Toronto and they went to Montreal and a casting call went out. You had to be between five foot five and five foot eight or something like that because they wanted to, you know. Fit. Yeah, yeah, and the sort of body shape all had to be kind of right. And so you know, every short actor in Toronto that I knew was at this audition, and it was kind of an improv. Now, I didn't know a lot about turtles at the time. Um, I, I knew of them. I knew that they were really popular with the kids. 
And, uh, but I hadn't seen one. So I went to the audition and I just did my impression of what I thought they were looking for. And about three weeks later, I got a recall. And I thought, okay, I'm going to watch the movie now and see what this is all about. And I loved it, the first movie. I never saw the second one at the time. And uh, so, yeah, I saw this and I thought, oh, I want to be Michelangelo. Because we hadn't broken down like who we were auditioning for. It was just Turtle. Right. And I thought, I want to be Michelangelo. So I started studying him. I started practicing so that when I went back to the recall, I was doing Michelangelo as opposed to just generic Turtle, (laughs) Ninja Turtle. And, uh, and I got along really well with the director, Stuart, and uh, he said, okay, so we're going to do, I'm going to go to Montreal, and then we're going to go to Vancouver, and then I'm going to come back for one more round here. And he said, so if we're really serious about this, David, how much weight can you lose and how fast? Because I was about 150 pounds. And uh, I needed to be, I think he said 132 pounds or something like that, because they were really trying to match the same actors that were in the other suits. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. Yeah, 18 pounds in what? Like a week and a half? Sure. <laughs> Easy peasy. No problem. So uh, for the next week and a half, you can imagine uh, what I was spending all of my time doing. I'm doing training montage I was music. basically, yeah, yeah, I was basically training to fight Rocky. And, uh, <laughs> and it was great. I mean, I, I, I got some, uh, some martial arts lessons. I, at that point, I had taken some judo at the time and uh, a little bit of karate, but I got some more lessons. And uh, I was at the gym, and you know I was eating well, and it, it was great. And the, the the third audition, you had to actually come in with them, like a turtle mask, like some kind of a mask to cover, because they didn't want to see your face, right? They want to see your body. But did they provide one for you? No, no, you... they said just bring something in. It could be anything. Just bring, bring whatever turtle face you have. It, it could be a turtle. I got a turtle mask. My wife actually went and found it for me. It was great. Okay. But but I saw <laughs> other people in there with like Lone Ranger masks or the White Mine mask or whatever, just something to cover their face. And I did this audition, and it had to have movement in it, and uh, I, I took some dialogue from, from the movie that I really liked, and I acted it out, and, uh, and it went really well, and I got the job. And then there was some kind of a problem with shooting in Vancouver, which I'm not sure what it was, whether it was a union issue or what. But anyway, the whole production then went down to Oregon and went back to the States. So only two Canadian actors were, only two of the Turtles were replaced with Canadians, mm-hmm. Raphael and myself. And um, uh, they hired the other two actors out of uh, L.A., one of them who had been in, in Turtles 2, Mark Castle. So that's how I got the job. And, uh, yeah, it was right place, right time. And, and, uh, and, I, was, and I got Michelangelo. That was the other thing. I, I was really pushing for that part. I really wanted to play that. Not that I would have said no to anything else because <laughs> I, I really wanted to be a part of it. But, yeah, it was really his, his character really appealed to me really uh, the joker of the group and uh, the youngest and it was just to me it was the most fun he was always my favorite I, I think Jesse what about you Jesse I was a Donatello guy yeah um, geek yeah geek <laughs> nerd and I'm uh, clearly a party animal there a party you go. dude demonstrably yeah <laughs> So that movie, that's the one they go back to, say, like 16th century Japan, yep. something yeah. like that. Yeah. So you're outdoors all the time. Yeah. Head to toe in this, like, what is it, vinyl? Uh, well, suit? it's 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 foam rubber. Uh, foam rubber. It's a foam rubber uh, material, but it doesn't breathe. Right. As you can see, I brought in a little uh, example here. It doesn't breathe. So yeah, you're covered head to toe. In this stuff, outside, uh, we were basically on a mountainside in Oregon where they built a little village for most of it. Very hot. Uh, we would lose seven, eight pounds a day in oh. liquid. Wow. Oh, yeah. So if you if you hadn't lost the, the 18 pounds 
to that they requested before you started, you were going to lose it pretty quick. No question. I mean, and you we ate all the time to have the calories because you got to keep in mind these guys, the, these characters, they're teenagers, right? High energy. Mm-hmm. They're superheroes, super super high energy, right? And uh, and we're carrying uh, a suit that probably weighs seventy pounds. And that's before they add on all the samurai stuff. Well, I'm, the, the I'm, yeah, exactly. The, that would even be more. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you, each of us weighed probably about 130 to 35 pounds. I think Jim was actually even lighter than that. And you put on a 70-pound suit, and you have to be able to move like a hyperactive teenage superhero. It's not just blah, plodding along. Like, you've got to really be light on your feet. Yeah, you're and, jumping around yeah. and kicking guys. And, exactly. And you have to be even more expressive than usual to make sure it comes through the That's through right. The There's no subtle gestures in the turtle suit. You have to be very big. And that's one of the reasons that the um, the puppeteers were so important at the time because we could hear in our headsets inside the head. It was very noisy inside the head with the gears and everything, so we couldn't actually hear our human actors. Oh! So we were sitting beside people and they would talk, but they were talking normally. But we've got all these this noise going on inside our head, so the the puppeteer would have to tell us what's just happening. So you're also listening to almost like a play by play. Okay. So and, and my 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 puppeteer was the head puppeteer, Gord Robertson, also a Toronto guy. Um, and uh, he was fantastic because every once in a while he would say, David, lean to the right. And that would get me into shot. So I would, because I don't know where the camera is. I can't <laughs> see anything. Lean to the right, lean to the right. Yeah, you're in. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> Things like that. Um, so, so just quickly, can you explain what the puppeteer did? The puppeteer manipulated the face. Okay. Eyes, mouth, all that kind of stuff. Inside the suit, we do the head turning, you know, and the body movement mm-hmm. and all that. But it's in sync with the facial expression. They would also say the lines on set. So I would see the mouth moving and I would hear the line in my headpiece, in my headset, and I would react accordingly with my body to, you know, and then, bolster that. And then they had another person actually dub over and do the actual voices. So your role is at least three people. It's like the, the combined five. efforts of, okay, so five. five people. There's, there's, there's the body performer, which is the actor. There's the puppeteer who does the voice on set. Then there's the voiceover artist who does the final version of the voice. Then there's the stunt turtle. All right. Okay. He does, that was, his name was David McEwen and he was from Montreal. And he basically did all the stunt work for all four turtles. Huh. And then there was a martial arts turtle for each character. So each character had five performers involved. So five people to do one part. That has to be the most unique acting experience, right? It was for me it was. Yeah, I'd never done anything like that or since. I mean, I did one bodysuit thing when I came back because it, you know, suddenly you become known as this bodysuit guy. <laughs> so I played uh, some uh, a mascot down at Skydome for some commercial. And, uh, and then I said, I don't want to do this anymore. So I stopped doing that. I didn't want to. It, it doesn't sound fun. The it, way you I, don't, I, don't, it. I didn't really like it that much. Yeah. It's very, I, I was very, the first day we were on set with all of the gear and it was a rehearsal and you can't see out, you can't see out of the head, right? You can't hear anything. I already explained that. And so you're blind and you're deaf and you're playing a hyperactive teenage superhero. And so... We all got a little claustrophobic, except for Mark, who had done it in the second movie. He was fine. The rest of us, we got a little claustrophobic and honestly thought, I don't think I could do this. I, honestly, I'm not trying to be a coward or a chicken or anything. I don't physically think I have the ability to do this. Because if you, if you, make, if you take your fingers and put them in front of your face and make two circles about the size of a dime and hold it about six inches in front of your face, 
That's what you see, okay? So you can see a tiny little bit, enough to know that there's the real world out there. Well, you know what? I can see green, right? Now I can see white. Oh, there's a head. Okay. I can't really see what the head's doing, but I know there's a head there. So if I want to put my hand out and touch you, I sort of can gauge where you are. But so many times you'd reach out to touch someone's shoulder and bash them in the head or, you know what I mean? Trying to pick something up. How some, do you do that? There's a child actor in that movie. You got to be. <laughs> you and was. Raphael were interacting with Yoshi. that kid a lot. With Yoshi. Yeah. Yoshi. <laughs> I had to do a pizza spinning sequence. Oh, completely blind. <laughs> Spin the pizza up and catch it. I can't do that with my sight. <laughs> I don't know how it happened. I don't know. And you're with latex fingers, so I can't feel the pizza. So you know, there's no weight to it. So it's like you have no idea if you've done it properly. Or I not. just mime it, and it's there, and they go, "Hey, you did it this time. Okay, great. <laughs> Try it again. Yay!" I, I bet the bloopers from that movie are something. I'm to sure talk they're about. hilarious. I never saw them, but I would like to. So uh, eventually, they did do uh, a live action TV series. Yep. The, the Power Rangers people did. They approach you to come they did. back for it. Yep, they did. They called me and asked me if I was interested in coming out to Vancouver, and I said, yeah, I think so. Why don't you just let me know when you get closer, you know, to... Because they, they weren't offering me a, a job. They were just asking me if I was interested. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, I think I'm interested. Why don't you just, you know, let me know when you get closer? Because I didn't know if this was real or not, or, if, you know, they were just putting out feelers or whatever, and I never heard from them again. So mm-hmm. I don't really mm-hmm. know what happened. I never said yes. I never said no. Um, I'm not sure I would have gone to do it because it would have been shooting in Vancouver, and um, I didn't really feel like leaving at that time right um, but it was so much fun to do I, you know so at the end it still feels like a positive experience oh 100%. even though when you describe it it sounds like it's something out of a Vietnam movie yes <laughs> it, it does, does feel a bit like uh, you know, like torture sequences uh, yeah no we all got hurt at some point we all had back problems I dislocated a thumb um, Mark Castle seriously injured his back because he wanted to do a certain um, stunt on his own because he's a gymnast he's, a, mm. he's a, um, an Olympic gymnast so he wanted to do a stunt, and uh, the stunt looked great, looked really good, hurt his back, you know. So we all got injured in it. It was hard. It was long hours. It was physically demanding and um, stressful in many, many ways, and yet one of the most fun things I've ever done in my life. And you successfully delighted an entire generation of children, like Graham and myself. Yeah. So it, it worked. It, 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 was, it was fun to be a part of that because I had nephews and nieces at the time that were big turtle fans. Yeah. Uh, my daughter hadn't been born at that point, so uh, she, and she's got no interest in it at all. But She's missing out. Yeah, yeah really. She's, she's not into it. But um, I don't even think she's seen my film. Son, this child, I tell you. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, it, it was fun to have, to have the nephews and nieces that were uh, really impressed by, by their uncle at that point. Yeah. I, I, it's one of my earliest memories of seeing a movie in theaters. That movie is that right? Yeah, I think I like. I remember going to the Promenade Mall with my dad and and watching that movie. So so it meant a lot to me, and it still it's like holds a special place in in my heart. We are such a different generation. My first film was Bambi. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. A little different. Yeah, a little bit. More tears in Bambi. I think. Oh my god. <laughs> All right, well, we're coming up on time, I think. So, David, thank you for coming. Thanks My for pleasure. talking to us. And thank you for your performances yeah. over the years because, I mean, obviously we're focusing a little heavily on Michelangelo, <laughs> but the whole thing has been delightful. Cool. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for um, inviting me. You've been listening to Geek Top 5. A special thanks to you, our favorite audience, and special thanks to our crew, to Ben Sound for bensound.com and Stella Simeonova, our webmaster. 
Uh, we would love to hear from you if you've got anything you want to ask Michelangelo <laughs> or anyone at Geek Top 5 in general. Uh, we'd love to get your feedback. There's 101 ways to get a hold of us. Yeah, we have a website, geektop5.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash geektop5. We're on Twitter at geektop5. And our email address is geektop5 at gmail.com. And, uh, you know, if you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. We're always looking for more listeners and more feedback, so let us know how we're doing. In the meantime, this has been Geek Top 5. We're going to go play with Michelangelo's actual nunchaku. (laughs) So you can be a little bit jealous, but we'll talk to you again soon on Geek Top 5. So that was Season 2 of Geek Top 5. And a special thanks to everyone and special thanks to you for joining us. Uh, Unfortunately, we will not be talking to you again in the next couple of weeks as we'll be going on hiatus for the summer. Um, Semi-coincidentally, because my my buddy Graham, uh, co-host, scholar, sometime philosopher, uh, and his wife Stella, our webmaster and graphics guru, are having a baby. Yes, we are, and uh, the the baby is due in a couple of weeks, so I I imagine I'll have my hands full for a little while. Very literally. A A lot of stuff to deal with. We do intend on on coming back and continuing. We will be back before the fall with regular updates. And in the meantime, don't cancel your subscription because we have some special features planned that will be showing up here and there. Won't be quite the same thing as our regular episodes, but just some stuff to to keep you satisfied because you know we'll miss you. Um, Otherwise, we will be taking a quick break and, you know, just to make sure everything's going well and that there's enough time for survival. (laughs) (laughs) And sleep. And then we will be back a little bit later. So thank you. Please you know, st- stay with us because, we, again, we'll have little things coming out. And then we'll be back. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Geek Top 5. We'll talk to you again soon.